Good morning. My name is Anna Hale, and I'm one of the breeders at the USDA in Houma, Louisiana. And I was asked to talk today about basic breeding's impact on our commercial variety releases. Um, first, I guess we need to kind of look at um, what we're looking for in our commercial varieties. And I think most of the people in this room know that, but from a breeder's standpoint, when you look at all of these different things like high TRS and early maturity and disease resistance to a half dozen diseases and yield stability and cold tolerance. It's a whole lot of different things to look at and we have to have variability in our population to keep all of this going in your varieties. So we breed cane, obviously, for sugar. We breed it to get the fiber levels low enough for the mill and we breed it so you make money. And our goal is to keep this, this industry sustainable through continued release of new varieties because they do have a life on them. And our, our, pest, uh, our pests in the industry are constantly adapting to our varieties, so we have to continue to have um, new varieties cranked out. So if we have low variability in our population, this leads to high vulnerability. And we've seen this a number of times in our past in the industry. Um, you see here is a, a chart of the pounds of sugar per acre over years. So I have these broken down kind of in different periods of time. And you can see that we were in the 1800s, you know, we were plodding along here and then all of a sudden the yields dropped. Between 1910 and 1920 we had this plummet down to about 2,000 pounds per acre, and I got this off the commercial variety data. Um, and the reason this happened was because of mosaic disease, and there was no genes for mosaic resistance in our population. If you don't have any genes to breed into it for the resistance, then you gotta go find them somewhere else. And this is where the, the basic breeding program comes in. So we're gonna do a little time travel now and go back in time to what did the breeders decide to do? And actually it was a pathologist that had the vision. So in 1928, it actually started a little bit before this, they brought in the POJ varieties, but we needed some more variability in our population. So Mr. Brandes, Dr. Brandes, who founded our, our station at HOMA, went to New Guinea. And I think this is so cool that they had a plane that actually talked about the expedition that they were on. And I got these pictures from the Smithsonian um, Institute. They're actually in the Museum of Natural History. Um, they went to New Guinea. This is his pilot, Mr. Peck. And they went on this big expedition for your industry to make sure that it remained sustainable. So at the time, it was, it was quite a, an undertaking. Um, it wasn't really safe. Uh, they went in by seaplane to some very remote areas and they collected sugarcane. You can see one of their seaplanes here landing and the natives kind of meeting them, wondering what's going on. A lot of them, they said, had never seen cameras or airplanes before. And what they found in the gardens there were some giant cane that kind of revived our industry and they had you know, resistance to, to what we needed but they had to get it back over here. So they put it on some steamer ships. It took a long time to get back over here. It came into Beltsville where they established our quarantine program. 
and they planted them and grew them out here, and this is where we got our resistance to mosaic the first time around. So there's a, a famous saying that if I have seen it uh, seen further, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants, and this is kind of where we are in our basic breeding program today. Um, this was this this quote goes back to 1678 by Isaac Newton. So if we look at our sugar per acre now, you see our blip here because of mosaic. They brought that material in. Our yields went up, and then we had another plateau. And this is where the basic breeding program, as we know it today, was established. They said, uh-oh, what happens when we don't have any variability left? Well, now our industry is vulnerable again. So they went out and got some more material because they had a new strain of mosaic, and they brought it into the industry. And what we're seeing now is the payouts from this increased variability. And you see that our sugar per acre yields, this is by decade, is continuing to rise. Now, it may seem like a really long-term endeavor, but let's compare this to an industry who does not have a sustained effort in basic breeding. So let's look at Australia. They've come in and out with basic breeding. They do it for a little while, and then they say, oh, we haven't gotten any payouts on it. This costing us, let's, let's quit this. So these are the yields in Australia. I pulled this from a paper that was printed, that was published by their breeders since 2005. And you can see the, the tons of cane per hectare um, in 2005. I put a little line here. This is this year's, or 2019's yields, compared to 2005. And they're actually lower now than they were. It's relatively stable, but they're not seeing that increase that we have here. And up here is the TRS, and we see a similar trend with that. So they've essentially tapped out their variability, and they have nowhere to go, whereas we're still seeing these increases. And this is where you see a basic breeding paying off. So what's going on now in our program? I'm going to start with our latest release. And this is HOCP 14885, and I want to kind of point out some of the new things that are going on with this variety, as well as 267, which was released by LSU. So we have a new program, a new database program, and it makes really pretty and complicated pedigrees that kind of look like spaghetti when you get all finished with them. But we start off with our variety, our male parent and our female parent. So our male parent is 613, and our female is 920. If we expand this out a little further, we see our grandparents here. So on our female side, we have 856 and 941 as grandparents. And on our male side, we have 905 and 540. Now, let's back it out a little bit more. We're going to lose sight of our, our actual, it gets really small here, so I've kind of highlighted on the outside, we can trace up both sides of this through the male and the female parent into the basic breeding program. So if we go with 885 and we trace back through 613, which is our male parent, several generations, we wind up at US 56158, which is one of those, those um, spontaneums or the wild varieties that was brought in in the 1950s when we had this second resurgence of mosaic in the industry. If we go through the other parent, so we go the 856 route, and we go up the male side here, so they're the great-grandparents, we actually get to SES006, 
which we haven't seen in our pedigrees before with release varieties. And this is exciting because now we have two different spontaneums contributing. And if you go up the other side of this pedigree through the 941 grandparent, you see we have 56, 15, 8 coming from that side as well. So to put this more in a format that you're used to seeing it that doesn't look like spaghetti, um, the original cross with 56, 15, 8 was made in 1959. And 613, which was apparent at 885, was a sixth back cross of this. And 885 is coming after that. So it's um, the seventh back cross of 56, 15, 8. Um, it's derived actually from 384 and 540 down that line. Come in with SES 006. This is a little bit newer. You see the cross was actually made 10 years later, the original cross with the wild relative. We took the best F1 hybrids and we crossed them back to sugarcane and we did this over and over again. And these are the parents as we come through the pedigree. And we're actually at a BC5 or a fifth back cross generation for 885 through the SES 006 line. Might be a little bit easier to look at this way. I got all different ways of looking at it. It just kind of breaks them down into the, the parents, the grandparents, the great grandparents. And you see we have 56158 and SES 006 coming from one side and 56158 from the other. This is for 885. All right, now we get into the real spaghetti bowl here. So this is the entire pedigree of 885 as we know it. We can track it back all the way to the beginning. Um, so taking you through history, these little blue dots here are the POJ varieties that were brought in during Brandy's era for the first problem with mosaic that we had. We tapped out our variability somewhere in here. And then you see the SES 006 and the 56158 being brought in in the 50s and the 60s. 30 years later, after these crosses were made, we have LCP 85384, 540, and finally 885, which was released in 2021. So we've merged these two different lines. Now, what does that mean for you as an industry? Well, I'll also point out that um, L14267 also has the SES006 in it. Uh, and we have a number of different varieties. I think 24% of our parents now have the SES006. It's coming along and you're gonna start seeing it in your released varieties. So in terms of what this means to you, uh, this is the outfield data uh, that was available when we released 885 and 267. Um, our outfield tests are the, the latest stages of our breeding program, and these varieties are well vetted before they're released to the industry. So this data is based on 31 plant cane tests, 21st retune tests, and 11 second retune tests. And you see the varieties down here, um, but this one right here is your 885. And you see that it's, it's out yielding the others, including 299 into the second retune. And we believe that's because it has a little bit more spontaneum in it. It's coming from a different background. We have more variability. It's better adapted. And you see 267 is the last one here. And it's also doing quite well. All right. So that dates back to the 1960s, almost 1970. 
that SES 06. So you may wonder, well, what are y'all doing now? I mean, again, we're standing on the shoulders of the giants that came before us. So are we going to be a giant to somebody at sometime 100 years from now? Well, that remains to be seen. But I will point out that more material has been brought in, and it's more recently come into the program. Remember, this is a very, very long-term program. Um, I'll point out that we had, we have a number of these, but I'm, I'm going to just give one as an example. This H008730, uh, which was a basic, came through our basic breeding program, got tested in the outfield. It was not released, but it has become a major parent in our program. And you'll see in this one, actually in the, one of its grandparents was a different spontaneum that was brought in later is IND81165. And this one, you're gonna see starting to show up in your pedigrees also. I also wanna point out that it didn't take us 30 years to get from here to something with commercial-like data. We were actually in the second back cross when we got there. So there is material coming down the pike. Um, so if we go back to standing on the shoulders of giants and we flip that pedigree upside down, you can kind of see the, the analogy here. That we have all of these um, previous breeders and, and people that worked in, the, in our program, including those people in New Guinea that went and collected that material from the gardens there. Um, and we're, we're, we're these just minor players up at the top right now. Um, and we see 885 up there, but there's going to be some more stuff to come, and it's going to come from some newer material. Um, so I'm going to kind of leave you with this quote that I, it's, it's long, but it, it was really interesting to me because it really encompasses kind of the spirit of our, our breeding program and our industry. And it came from Dr. Brandy's paper that was published in 1930. And he was talking about this expedition that they went on. And it says, it remains only to mention the importance of making friends in the remote, seldom visited places and establishing correspondence with them, not to speak of the natural impulse to do so dictated by the best of humanitarian motives. It almost invariably happens that a need for some service or material will arise later, and a loyal correspondent is indispensable. Demands on official-looking letterheads signed by unknown functionaries do not carry the weight of an unpretentious request from the one whose claim is based on intimate, friendly contacts in the lonely places where shortwave radios are the chief companions. We reciprocate by sending formula and materials for water culture of veg vegetables on soilless atolls, fountain pens to missionaries on jungle rivers, catalogs and safety razors to chiefs of mountain villages, and bulletins to all. It is admit admirably successful, one can unblushingly ask a man to take a trip almost as formidable as a Lewis and Clark expedition across North America, and he sees nothing extraordinary in it. Chances are that sooner or later, along will come a small packet of seed or a five-gallon oil tin full of cuttings packed in charcoal from some far-off place where the spirit of international service is not beclouded. And the strength of our industry is really our ability to cooperate with one another, and we have a really special relationship here, particularly in Louisiana between the Ag Center, the American Sugarcane League, and USDA, and it's been in place virtually unchanged since Brandy's was here in 1990. We also have collaborations with people overseas, and it's so true that it's easier 
to have that personal conversation with somebody and say, hey, you have Fiji disease there? You have anything that's resistant? In case it comes over here, I wanna make sure that I'm ready for it. And we have these kinds of conversations and can request this kind of material. So with that, I'd like to say thanks to all the giants and dwarfs that have come through the breeding program and a special thanks to the LSU Ag Center and the American Sugar Cane League. Thanks.